0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, verses 1 through 14 and 24 through 28. I'll give you a second to look that up. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14 and then 24 through 28. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. This is the word of the Lord. Do
1: that so I can wander around a little bit and hope with the wind picking up a little bit. If you if you see the papers come flying off of my stand, maybe one of you guys over there get ready to jump in and catch them. I think that'll work. Let's pray. God and Father, as we turn now to your word, remembering the resurrection of your son, may you speak through it as a living word to us, though we are sinful people. May you speak through me, though I am a sinful man, and do this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Friends, it is Easter, right? Friday, we remember Jesus' death on the cross for us suffering in our place, dying the death that we all deserve, and he died. And on Saturday, he was in the grave, and on Sunday morning, as we celebrate this morning, he rose again bodily, broke the bonds of death, came forth victorious. It's Easter. And the question I want us to wrestle with then this morning, given that proclamation, is simply this. It's, so what? (laughs) So all of that happened, and all of that is sort of exciting in the way that, like, the last scene, you know, the, the turning point in a movie is exciting to us. It can be an exciting announcement. But for too many of us, when we actually ask for our lives, for this moment that we live in, how does that change things? How does that affect me? We can be left wondering a little bit, at least, with, so what? And so this morning, I simply want us to ask that question. And of course, the answer to that, so what, is really a lot, and I'm not going to pretend to give you guys a complete answer, because that would take a few hours, I've been told that's a bad idea in a sermon, but what I want us to do is take this text from Ezekiel 37. This text is one of the key Old Testament texts that sets the theme of resurrection that Jesus comes to fulfill, and looking at this text, I want us to reflect a little bit on a couple of the things that Ezekiel sees in that hope of resurrection that we can then apply to our lives. As we think about this text from Ezekiel 37, I gotta just say a couple things up front. First of all, it is a strange story in some ways. It's a vision narrative from an Old Testament prophet. And when we read it, it's the sort of thing that sounds like it's maybe from some like fantasy movie with these like skeleton armies raising up or something like that, it's strange. And it's a sort of weirdly familiar text. I don't really know why this vision of Ezekiel Ezekiel is probably one of the least familiar books of the Bible, but this vision is actually pretty famous. we uh, I mean, I remember as a kid learning this spiritual that was like the leg bone connected to the thigh bone and, you know, hear the word of the Lord. And I'm glad by your laughter, at least some of you recognize that too. You're always putting yourself out there when you start singing. But, but here's what I want you to do. Forget that kind of weird familiarity and instead just imagine this, all right? Imagine that you are an ancient Israelite, and in particular, that you're an ancient Israelite in exile, because that's who Ezekiel is writing to. God's people, after being brought into the land and living in the land under this series of kings because of their consistent sin and rebellion— are ultimately defeated and carried off into exile. And Ezekiel starts writing around four years after the exile and writes and prophesies for about 20 years. So you're in this place where you've been carried off from your land and not just sort of like you decided to take a trip, but like Jerusalem got leveled by these armies and people that you loved got killed and you got you know dragged away in chains and you're in this foreign country and surrounded by foreign gods and you have no idea what the future holds, you have no idea what's coming, imagine that that is you, because that's who Ezekiel is speaking to. People who feel defeated and dead in many ways. People who are wrestling with discouragement and despair and questions about their identity, who they even are. People in a foreign and hostile country wondering what their future holds people tempted to compromise by the world around them and with a deep sense of shame and guilt from their own past that led to this exile. Those are the people that Ezekiel is writing to, and I think many of us can resonate in different ways with the situation that they're in. So you're that kind of person, and now I want you to hear what Ezekiel says. And in it I want in this vision I really want to suggest that what we see is three different hopes of resurrection. You could almost call them three resurrections that are meant to give us hope as believers. Three resurrections. And the first one is a resurrected heart. A resurrected heart. I don't know if you noticed this, but so God speaks to Ezekiel and tells him to prophesy over this valley of dry bones, but this process of restoring them to life actually has two steps. Did you notice that? First, he prophesies, and then he says in verse 8, I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. So he prophesies, and the first thing that happens is God brings the bodies back together, right? Covers them in, in sinew and and skin, and they look like they should be alive now, right? They've been restored physically, but that that hasn't yet happened. So then the second thing happens. God says to, in verse The next verse, he says, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. And so then God's, this breath, this wind comes and breathes on the bodies, and then they come to life. So question, why are there those two steps in this process? Why doesn't that happen all at once? Well, to understand that, first of all, you just need to know that the word breath, in Hebrew and the word wind and the word spirit or soul are all actually the same word. It's ruach for those couple of you that really love that kind of thing. In fact, if you look in verse 14, where God says, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, it's exactly the same word as with breath back in these earlier verses. And so when God speaks about these bodies needing this breath that he's gonna breathe on them to give them life, it's, it's actually this, the same thing as saying that he needs to put his spirit in them in order to give them life. See the reason for that is that if you're an Israelite in exile, like these people he's speaking to, you certainly realize that you need a physical restoration. You look around and you're like, we're not in Jerusalem, we're not in our land, we're surrounded by all these people. These circumstances aren't good. You look around and say, we need a physical restoration. And God acknowledges the physical restoration in this in this promise, right? But what Ezekiel's trying to highlight for them is that they also need something much deeper. They need a spiritual resurrection. They need God's spirit to be placed in them in order for them to live. They need a resurrected heart that not just their physical circumstances need to change, but their inner being needs to be made alive again and transformed. There's this idea um, that is all over in our world, all over many human beings have, that deep down in our hearts, all people are good people. And I understand why that is such a popular idea, but I always wonder, whenever I hear people say it like that, I wonder, for instance, have you ever watched children? Like, I mean, I love my kids, but little kids, have you ever watched how they treat each other? (laughs) right, how, how mean and cruel and petty they are with each other. They didn't have to be taught that, right? I have, I have never once in parenting had to set my kids down to be like, you're being too selfless, you're being too obedient, right? Something within them from even the earliest age naturally causes them to be cruel and selfish and rebellious. And that part of our hearts, which is what scripture calls sin, that, that, that's something that's inside of us as part of our humanity, Something about us is twisted and damaged by sin. And now, that doesn't mean, yes, there is also, because we're made in God's image, and he graciously preserves it, there's also good, beautiful things about people, right? It's not that all they are in their hearts is that evil, sinful, crooked thing. But that is a part of our human condition. And that is why simply changing our physical circumstances, simply changing the outside, is not enough to truly give us life. I mean, just like those ancient Israelites who were looking only at their physical circumstances that they thought needed restoration, I feel like it's so easy for us to fall in this trap in our world where we just focus on the outside, on trying to fix the outside and think that that's all that we need. I mean, even... Like I was thinking about this week, even in our world, I feel like there's different versions of that story depending on where you fit culturally. Like there's sort of a progressive and a conservative version of that story, right? Where in, in the one version, it's like, well, the problem is that people are good, but they need these sort of like systems and that will fix them, right? That it's power structures and stuff in the world that needs to be changed. And if we could just fix that, if we could just change that external stuff, then people would be good and healed and everything would be the way that it should be. And at the same time, I feel like kind of on the other, more conservative side, you have the story that like the problem is all about motivation and consequences. And that if we could just like give people enough discipline and give give people enough self-control to motivate that, that then they would, you know, that, that then they would behave the way that they should. And then they'd be fixed and, you know, just teach them enough morals and people would be the way that they should be. And of course, scripture is all for like fi- both fixing unjust systems and about addressing, you know, the moral formation of our hearts, but but scripture would also insist that even if you could create that world, right? Even if you could sit down and change everything about the world around us to be the way that you think it should be, we would still in so many ways be people that are broken and twisted by sin. Because it's not just coming from out there. It's coming from within each one of us. What's wrong with the world? dwells in our hearts. It is people like you and me behaving in the selfish, ordinary, world-destroying ways that we behave that is ultimately the reason the world is the way that it is. And I say all of that to get us back to the same point Ezekiel is making, which is that we need a heart transformation. We need a resurrected heart if we're going to address our problems. Our hope, if we are in Christ, if you're a Christian, is that he has worked that change in your heart. Not, not all at once, it's, it's, a, it's something that he starts and then continues to have its effects as you continue to wrestle with sin and grow in him over the course of your life. But that the Holy Spirit is working in you now, if you are in Christ, to begin to give you victory over that sin that's in your heart. And if you're not in Christ, if you haven't experienced that, then I'd especially highlight to you this part of what Ezekiel's saying, because he's saying that, look, look, Christianity is not just some sort of activity you add to your life to make you a marginally better person, right? It's not like this piece of the jigsaw of American culture that you just kind of plug in next to your white picket fence and things, that Christianity is meant to be a heart transformation, a heart resurrection The the difference between your heart before Jesus works in it and your heart afterwards is supposed to in a real sense be the difference between Jesus in the tomb on Saturday evening and Jesus alive again on Sunday morning. We all need to experience that. And as we are in Christ, we have the hope of that reality, that resurrected heart. That's the first hope of resurrection we have. In addition to that, I think that Ezekiel would also remind us that in Jesus' resurrection, we have a resurrected story, a resurrected story as well as a resurrected heart. Remember, if you're in exile, right, like these hearers, one of the main questions you have is what does the future hold for me, right? I had all this meaning in the past and then it got taken away from me. What does the future hold? Pick up in verse 12, Ezekiel says, therefore prophesy and say to them, So God means this resurrection hope to be a promise to Israel about its future. That in a real sense, they, they have this story. They had this story of sin and failure before the exile and then of defeat and exile. But God, he's using the image of resurrection here to communicate that reality that this is the great plot twist in the story. This is the moment when he's going to come and change things and, re- and work restoration for Israel's story and for their future a resurrected story for them. Now, I say that, and I want to clarify a couple of things about what that does and doesn't mean, all right? In just a minute, because, because Ezekiel says, and Scripture would tell us, that we have that hope of a resurrected story, but we can hear that wrong. So let me give two important clarifications to that before I give us that hope. And the first of those clarifications is that that doesn't mean that we're going to see the end of that story, the, the happy ending tomorrow. It can, in fact, take a long time, like our whole lives and longer. I mean, let me just... Another of the prophets that's speaking to the people in exile is Jeremiah, um, and in Jeremiah, there's this really famous verse, right, that in many ways is speaking the same hope for the future that we have here in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, and this is on like t-shirts and coffee mugs and stuff, but it's, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Some of you guys have heard that, right? And again, that's a true hope of God resurrecting our story and blessing us and changing the story of our future. But you gotta hear it within the context of Jeremiah 29.10, the verse right before it, where he says this. He says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So you have this hope of a future and God resurrecting their story, but he's also like, it's going to be 70 years before you're restored, right? You're going to be in exile for seven decades. Ezekiel here, I mean, this text, we don't know when exactly it comes, but it's probably towards the end of his ministry. So he's speaking this hope of these dry bones being resurrected, and it's still going to be 50 years at that point before God brings them back to their land. And I say that because too often the sort of hope of God working res- resurrection in our story I feel like preachers give you this impression that it's like, it's like, look, you've had a hard day, you've had a hard month, a hard year, but tomorrow, right? Just hang on one more day and then I promise everything's gonna be better. And that is not what this hope is. It isn't saying that the sun is gonna come up tomorrow or anything like that. And also, we need to be clear about what it means to have a resurrected story. Does it mean simply that life will be easy or that I get my yacht finally or something like that? And there, if you look down in the later part, we get these promises to Ezekiel from God about what their restoration looks like. And part of it does entail, yeah, coming back to the land, this physical thing, but there's other parts of that promise. So like in verse 24, God says, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. So what is restoration? It's Israel being restored to a place of obedience, of having God rule over them as they should, and of walking in His ways the way they should. Or in verse 28, it says, "Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when My sanctuary is in their midst forever." So, what is restored? It's Israel's mission. Israel was never meant to just be these people that get a chill with God's promises. Their whole purpose was to spread God's promises to the nations, to show God's glory and goodness to the people around them. And God says, I'm going to restore you to that mission and bring that mission to completion through you. And the reason I give all those caveats is because here's what I'm trying to say. God's resurrection power is at work in your life and in the story of your life, but I do not mean by that that he's going to make your life easy or that he's going to give you the American dream or that suddenly like you're going to be an Instagram celebrity because everyone's going to want to see all the great pictures of how happy everything is. What I mean by that is instead two things. That God will resurrect your story in two ways. One is that no matter how many times you've been defeated, no matter how much struggle is in your story, God will use your story, including those hard parts, to make you more like Jesus. He will work through your story to bring the life of Christ to bear in your life. And secondly, I promise you that God will use your story, including those hard parts, to accomplish his mission in the world. To work good in the world. And that doesn't, again, that's not say, right? Like, that can feel disappointing to some of us, I think, because what we want is our lives to be easy. But really what that's saying is that God is instead going to use your lives to do something meaningful and significant and good. Which is actually a much better promise. If I can just give you one picture of that this morning, I think often whenever I talk about the way that God works in our stories of um, Joni Erickson Tada, who, if you don't know who she is, she's a a Christian writer and speaker. And um, and when she was a teenager, when she was a young woman, she was injured in a diving accident and is a quadriplegic, has spent her whole life in a wheelchair, unable to move anything below her neck. But I remember reading Joni once talk about That wheelchair and this idea that she had where she said, I actually hope that I can have that wheelchair with me in heaven. Not because I will need it and not simply because to laugh at the fact I don't need it, but but she says, I'd like to keep it in a corner so that sometimes I can look at it and then look at Jesus and say, thank you. Here's what she says. She says, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. See, God worked this incredible thing in Joni's story, right? When you think about her as like a 17-year-old suddenly paralyzed from the neck down, an incredible story of resurrection, but the resurrection was not taking her out of that wheelchair. And in fact, if you read her talk about it, there was a lot of damage done to her heart early on by Christians that told her that that was the way that God would use her story and said the resurrection he worked was that in the midst of that suffering and in the midst of that brokenness, she both came to know Jesus with a depth and an intimacy and a passion that she never would have without it, and her life was used to impact, I mean, in her case, millions of people, millions of lives that never would have been touched without that. Her story was resurrected in those ways by the power of God. We have the real hope that our stories can be resurrected in those ways, too we have that hope of a resurrected heart and that hope of a resurrected story. But then it's also right, I think, on Easter to acknowledge that there's this third hope of resurrection that Jesus' resurrection also gives us, and that is the hope of a resurrected universe. A resurrected universe. This story from Ezekiel fits into this, this larger biblical story about both our bodily resurrection and this cosmic resurrection that God promises is going to take place. And for this to make sense in Ezekiel, let me just give you a rule of biblical interpretation. First, just stepping back a little bit, which is that when we read the Bible, we have to recognize that it is all God's word, but that God has inspired his word in such a way that it creates an unfolding story, where over time we learn and grow more and more about what's happening in this story. And so that means, That, in particular, when we're reading things like these Old Testament prophets, that we recognize that they're speaking to something in a way that often also has hints and this foreshadowing of even greater ways that it's fulfilled. And this prophecy in Ezekiel is a good example of that. Because on one level, we could say this prophecy seems like it's fulfilled when Israel is restored to the land, right? That that, that Israel does ultimately get brought back after the 70 years of exile. And so we can say, yes, this was fulfilled there. But the imagery and language Ezekiel uses seems to also speak to something deeper than that, right? When he says, when God says, "'Behold, I will open your graves "'and raise you from your graves, O my people,' right? That seems to communicate sort of this deeper acknowledgement that death itself needs to be overcome. Or when he talks about um, that, like, he's going to put this prince and he'll rule over you forever, right? That doesn't sound like just some king in a normal political way. And there's lots of Old Testament passages like that, that point forward to the resurrection without spelling it out in detail. For example, in Isaiah 25, one of my favorites, Says that God will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Or in Hosea thirteen, the prophet says God says, I will ransom my people from the power of the grave. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O grave, where is your sting? over and over we get these sort of hints and foreshadowings and promises towards not just resurrected circumstances, not just a resurrected heart, but actual physical resurrection. And of course, Easter is the moment where we see all those themes brought together in Jesus, who fulfills and completes them in his resurrection. And so part of the so what, of Jesus's resurrection is the resurrection of our bodies that when Jesus Christ returns, that all who are dead will be raised. They'll be raised physically. There will be things different because we won't have sin and death and disease in our flesh anymore. But Jesus' resurrection is a template for ours, that just as he walked and talked and ate and drank, and it was his body raised, so our bodies will be raised from the dead. And even more than that, we get images in Scripture of that resurrection overflowing into the world and the universe itself, that we're promised a new heavens and a new earth, not new in the sense that we're like stuck in a rocket ship and flown somewhere else, but new in the sense of renewed and restored and resurrected. Here from Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says this He says, The creation, meaning all of this around us, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We will be raised bodily. This world will be restored and renewed, and in that new creation, we will live in union, with our creator. In verse 27 of Ezekiel that we read, God says, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Which is taken up again at the end of the book of Revelation to express the intimacy and communion with God that we experience on the new heavens and new earth. So we will be raised. Here's how that meets us. Let me just, a couple of ways that that hope of the physical resurrection, I think, can encourage our hearts this morning. One is that that means that you have time. You have time. I want to be careful here because there's a proper urgency we do need to have about this life, right? We shouldn't put off for tomorrow the good works that God calls us to do today. But there's also a sense in which I think, especially in our society, we leave people overwhelmed, feeling like they have to be perfected and do it all and have every relationship and know everything and develop every skill fully uh, tomorrow, right? But part of the hope of the resurrection is that we are eternal beings. We have infinite time. And so while we should properly do the work that God gives us each day, we don't have to stress about all that remains undone. We have time. In addition that hope of a resurrected body and resurrected universe means that the victory is certain. Not tomorrow, not you know, not in this life, but we know at the end of God's story that the victory is guaranteed. And that means that we can live victoriously in the present, knowing that while we still struggle against sin, that we still struggle in bodies that groan under the weight of death and against these systems of death that work in the world, that we still struggle in all those ways, that we know how the thing ends, right? We know that they'll ultimately be defeated. We know that the last word will be life. And that enables us in the present to live in a way that's able to say with the apostle, oh death, where is your victory? Because in the end, it will not have it. And that hope of the resurrection should remind us that we were made for more than this. We were made for more than this. I mean, it is a beautiful moment. It's not quite there, but almost there, but you know those moments when just the world is right, you know, and you're just like, oh, I'm catching this glimpse of like the the light is perfect and I'm with people I love and this moment is so right and so good and and that that causes our hearts to something in our hearts to say like that's how the world is supposed to be right that that's how things are supposed to be that it's supposed to be like that always that feeling that longing is actually validated by the resurrection because it tells us that that is how the world is meant to be and how the world will be when all things are made new and that, both, that does two things for you. First, it just validates that desire, right? I think too often in our world, in kind of the cynicism and, you know, being realistic of our world, we kind of beat down that desire in people's hearts. And that's not biblical. We're supposed to long for a world that is better and more beautiful than this one. And more than that, it also calls us to work in a way that honors and seeks that world in the present. Ultimately, That world, as it's meant to be, waits for Jesus' return when all things are made new. But because we are bound for that world, and we know that that is what the world is becoming, we're also invited by Scripture to live out of that world in this one, to, to practice resurrection in our lives, to live out the reality of what things will be when God makes all things right, that reality of true, deep life today work for it, even though we'll never fully accomplish it in this age. So friends, that, that's part of the so what of the resurrection. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is at work now, he sends his spirit so that we might have resurrected hearts. And that, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead in his power, he is at work working resurrection in our stories as they're joined to his. And that because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we have the sure and certain hope that we will rise with him when he returns and that all things will be made new. May you carry that hope with you this Easter season. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, there are many words that I could spill, but I give thanks for the knowledge that while our stories are often hard, often meander, that the last word of those stories is everlasting life, because you live. I pray, Lord, that you would build us up in the hope of that life, that you would secure and strengthen us. Father, I pray for these friends as they walk through their stories that you would be working resurrection in their hearts, that you would be working through their stories to make them more like Jesus and show forth his glory to the world, give their lives meaning and significance as they do your good work, and that you would secure all of us in the hope of our resurrections. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.